Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. Unlike always and ever, I am not Scott Jones. I'm Jeff Holzklaw, moving over from occasional guest to host as Scott is on holiday, basking in the glow of some local beach. But the Mockingcast must go on, coming to you every Friday to discuss the weekly wrap-up post Another Week Ends, which is kind of like a grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs. In a moment, I'll be joined by David Zoll and Sarah Cogden, but before we discuss the contents of Another Week Ends, we're going to hear from Scott Jones as he was able to interview two different guests before leaving on vacation. Our two guests are both actively involved in the work of mission and the church life on the ground. The Reverend R.J. Heyman works at St. Martin's Church in Houston, Texas. His responsibilities there include stewardship and oversight of all the Christian education ministries of the parish. He continues to play a supervisory role in student ministries and is a regular participant in the family table service. However, in this interview, he talks more about his work before St. Martin's when he attempted to plant a church in the heart of New York City. Rick Heltney is a partner in the firm SEMA Partners for Churches, whose mission is to serve as partners in the crucial journey of churches in the midst of leadership transitions. After our guests, we'll join the usual suspects to talk about the contents of another week ends. On the Mockingcast for the first time, the Reverend R.J. Heyman, and there's no Y in your name, which is fascinating who, it sounds like there should be, who works at St. Martin's Episcopal Church, the largest Episcopal church, I believe, in the country. Is it not? It is. It is. Probably the, probably the Western Hemisphere. There's probably some church in, Anglican church in Nigeria or something that's a bit bigger, quite a bit bigger than us, but probably the biggest in the Western Hemisphere. When you say quite a bit, you've researched that. Like that's, well, no, I no, want to qualify, no, actually, we know. I haven't at all. I just know that of the, what is it, 70 million Anglicans worldwide, something like, I don't know, 30 or 40 million of them are in Nigeria. And so I'm just speculating that there must be a church there that's larger than ours. But I don't know that for a fact, actually. We, we could be the largest Episcopal church or Anglican church, I should say, because we're part of the Anglican communion in the world, but I have no idea. Are you a cradle Episcopalian? Like, did you grow up Episcopalian? I did actually. I was uh, I was baptized um, Roman Catholic. I was born in Holland and Amsterdam. My dad's Dutch. My mom's American. So I was baptized Catholic. But then, from my earliest memories, uh, yeah, raised in an Episcopal church, uh, mainly in uh, Connecticut. And that's why your Heyman is with a J and not a Y because exactly. you're Dutch. Yeah, and my first name RJ is actually uh, Rutger Jan. It's like Rutger Jan. And when I say that, it's, it's embarrassing. If there are any Dutch listeners, I can't actually pronounce my own name. Because um, I don't speak Dutch, so but that's, so we that's have what a it is. huge Dutch constituency <laughs> that's right, that you've offended. You just killed the podcast. The Thanks, dude. Oh, sorry. Way sorry. to go. Yeah, yeah. Now you went to Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry in Pitts in Am at Ambler Ambridge. Ambridge, yeah, named for the Ambridge. American Bridge Company. We uh, I went to Pittsburgh Seminary and we played Trinity in flag football once, and we got nice. crushed. Nice. We, crushed. we yeah. have we've got pretty strong flag football game. I think the year after I left, we won um, the fabled uh, Luther Bowl, which is uh, you know a bunch of seminaries get together every year and have a little tournament, and uh, we actually we, we won that a few times. So pretty exciting. So that was the like, were you there at the time? Like Mockingbird, its founding was sort of out of some of those guys that went to yeah, Trinity, absolutely. right? Like J Jacob absolutely. Smith and yeah, Aaron yeah, Zimmerman, right. those guys. So so were you in that kind of scene? In the I founding was. scene? I was. I absolutely was. Yeah, you know, Dave Zoll, um, at one point he was kind of toying with the idea of going to seminary. I, I thought at some point he might actually join me at Trinity. And then I remember having a phone conversation. He's like, you know, I'm not I'm not going to do that. But what I do want to do is start uh, this ministry. And I think he, he basically got it off the ground pretty much the time I graduated and moved back to uh, to New York City to um, to work there, to plant a church there, which is like 2008, I guess. What, and, and we're coming up with the 10th anniversary. So maybe we started in 2007. What was the inception date of Mockingbird? Do you know? Well, it's the 10-year anniversary. So this is 2017. So, probably, so, 2000, so, probably so wait, 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 carry the seven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 2007. Yeah. There you go. So, so yeah, that would have been like my second year of seminary. That's right. So you plan a church that again does not seem like an Episcopalian thing to do. Like I, I don't mean a lot of Episcopalians like, hey, went to seminary, coming out, forget curate, I'm going straight to church planning. 
Yeah. And the way that worked out was kind of strange. Like, honestly, I never went to seminary with the intention of, uh, of being a priest, which, which, um, you know, Sarah Condon wrote that great article recently about how, you know, there are a lot of people in seminary right now who have no intention of being priests. Um, and that was kind of me. Uh, but then I got more excited about it. Um, I was, I went for ordination in the diocese of Pittsburgh, which is where, uh, you know, the seminary is located. But then that was right about the time that the Diocese of Pittsburgh was leaving the Episcopal Church, which Bishop meant, Duncan, right? Exactly. So I was I've a bit of a cro- I was a bit of a crossroads. You know, do I try and find another diocese that might take me on? Um, you know, what do I do? And around that point, there was a, a recruiter or kind of a guy, you know, on, on campus from the Anglican Mission in America, and he and I just hung out and got to know each other a little bit, and they were doing a lot of church planting and. I was kind of looking for a way to get back to New York City because I'd been there for four years. No, how long? Yeah, four years before seminary. That's right. My kids were born there. I loved it. Um, and they were interested in planting an Anglican church in, in New York. And so that's what ended up uh, That's what ended up happening. So I kind of um, you know, got out of the Episcopal slash Diocese of Pittsburgh ordination process and, and finished up with the Anglican mission in America. So the church plant went so well, you just got sick of it, and you were like, yeah, "Hey, exactly. I need to be in something better. I need to a bigger, on I've bigger and better New things." York. That's right. No, it was it was hard. It failed. You know, we we uh, we had a good run. Um, we had four years. Uh, I, I was able to raise a good chunk of change up front from some very generous individuals and churches. Uh, and we the first I would say couple years were pretty good. Uh, and then we just started kind of running out of money. And the the people we were drawing were on the younger side, you know, we probably had a solid crew of about 100 people. Um, the financial crisis hit, obviously, in 2008. Um, and, and people just, you know, New York's incredibly expensive, and we just were not able to, to reach financial self sustainability. Um, yeah, I mean, that being that being said, uh, we had sort of a three year runway. Uh, to reach, you know, financial self-sustainability, quote unquote, um, that was kind of the vision that within three years, we'd be able to sort of pay our own bills. But I remember when I moved, when I came down to Houston, uh, the St. Martins was supporting this church plan about an hour away. And they were in like their seventh or eighth year out of 10 years of sending like a big chunk of change over to this church plan in Houston. And I was like, that seems like a more viable model, <laughs> you know, 10, 10 years. What, what do you three, say to so. your funders? What do you say to your funders? Like, how do you, how do you say, hey, thanks for the for the generous gifts? It just didn't work. Like, what do you say to that? That's all. That's all I said. I just wrote a bunch of thank you notes. You know, I said thank you so much. Uh, we did everything we could. We tried really hard, and we just uh, we we weren't able to make it. Um, that being said, uh, I probably I don't know. I probably should have done more fundraising. I sort of thought. I mean, I'll be told. You know, upfront we raised like. I don't know, $600,000 or something. Um, and I figured that would be a big enough chunk of change to, to sort of get us to, to self-sustainability. Ended up not being enough because New York is insanely expensive. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I just said, thank you. We, we tried hard and, and it didn't work out. And they were, they were very gracious. I mean, I think the people that I was, that I'd raised money from, they understand how ministries work. They understand how churches work. And, and they also understand how startups work. You know, that the majority of startups uh, don't, Sometimes don't make it. So they were, they were very gracious. And like, it's hard too, because you had like a hundred folks. So it's like, it's not, it's one thing if you got like 20 folks, like, what do you say to those hundred people? Like, Hey, I know this looks like it's working, but it's not like, <laughs> that's pretty much what I did. Yeah. I guess about four Could months. I have just done this job for you? You could have just hired me. Just say this, just say, I mean, I'm really, I'm on it. Right. Yeah. You're, you, you know, exactly. You're, you're, uh, could have done a better job than I did. Um, no, about four or five months out, we had sort of an all church dinner where I laid it out for them. I said, you know, um, I, I sort of had some people give testimonies about what the church had meant to them. And then I sort of said, here's where we are. Like, here's what we have in the bank. Here's our monthly burn rate. Um, here's the date that we're going to run out of money. And I sort of put it out there and there was no real, um, you know, that didn't really move the needle much. Uh, and so there you have it. You know, and, and we, we tried a lot of different things. We tried, you know, weekend retreats and leadership gatherings and dinners. And, um, you know, there was a, a few weeks where I went around to talk to sort of groups of people in our church uh, just to sort of see where we're at. But it, at the end of the day, like, um, you know, I couldn't I couldn't pay my rent and we were out of money and I had, you know, kids to raise, mouths to feed. And it just was not a sustainable situation for our family. And so, um yeah, one Sunday, I just sort of said, I'm, I'm sorry, this is not working out and we're going to have to bring this to a close. Do you, did you feel like, like, I feel like sometimes people fail 
but don't feel like a failure. Did you feel like, hey, I failed? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I'm a failure, or did it, was it like? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes, yes. I yeah, I take it. Uh, it's funny, you know. I remember a conversation I had. So, so before I went to seminary, I worked for this um, parachurch youth ministry called Focus, which is kind of like Young Life, but it targets kids in private, independent, and boarding schools. Just because the founder, this guy Peter Moore, who's a former dean of um, Trinity Seminary, had gone to a prep school, and there had been nothing like Young Life, and he was like, "Hey, you know, kids in." Private schools need something too. The one percent need Jesus too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's right. Some I don't want to say more than they have their they have their own they have their problems. They have their problems. Believe me. Um, but anyway, I remember that went really, really well. You know, I came to moved to New York in two thousand one. That was five years actually, not four. Five years moved in two thousand one. The ministry was probably about twenty kids. And when we left five years later, it was a couple hundred, you know, so it grew like tenfold in five years and went really, really well and um, incredibly encouraging. But I remember saying to my boss, um, I said, you know, uh, because I saw that it was God's hand. It wasn't me. Like I did my job. I did what I was supposed to do. But when a ministry grows like that, you just know that it's not you. You know that God is doing it. But I remember saying to my boss at that time, I said, I hope that, you know, um, I'm happy to give God the credit when things are going wrong, or going right, excuse me. But I, I really hope that when I have a ministry that just utterly fails, I won't take all the blame on myself. Like, I'm happy to give God the credit when things go right, but I know that I'll blame myself when they go wrong. And, uh, and that's kind of what I did. And, and the, last, the last, you know, three, four years, I'd say it took me a couple years to kind of process that and um, think it through. I actually, a couple years you know, out sent a fairly long Facebook message to like everyone in the church with whom, you know, I could, I could, uh, who I was still friends with or, or could, could look up, um, just to say thank you. And I'm sorry. And, um, you know, so it took a little while to process that, that failure, I gotta say. What, you know, after an experience like that, like, are there things like books or thinkers that became more important after or, or art forms or, or like what, like what has, how did that experience shape like your intake valve like the stuff that you sort of look to for entertainment inspiration what do i think uh i remember yeah i was a bit of an open wound for a while i remember have you ever seen that movie buck about sort of the, the real life horse whisperer you ever seen the documentary no i've never seen that no it's incredible it's incredible i remember watching that when sort of things were falling apart and just kind of weeping because he was a guy who was able to minister to horses and to their owners, really, because what he saw was that whatever problems a horse was having were symptomatic of whatever personal issues their owner had. And he was able to speak to them in a powerful way because of his own brokenness, you know, because of having an abusive father um, and and sort of finding healing, coming to terms with himself. Um, and he, he truly, you know, I hate the, it's such a cliche, a wounded healer, but he, that's exactly what he was. You know, he'd been through so much um, and had found sort of some peace within himself that then he was able to speak into other people's um, pain. And I will say, you know, I was, again, I was talking, Sarah Khan and I work at the same church. Um, and she was, uh, we, we have a friend in common that she went to go meet with who I, I know him well, I, not, not, yeah, pretty well, pretty well. Um, but she came away and she's like, you know, his name is Mike. She's like, you know, Mike, Mike loves you. <laughs> I was like, really? She's like, yeah. I was like, how so? She's like, well, he just remembers when you first got here four years ago and you were teaching the big Sunday school class at church, which is like, you know, three, 400 people. Um, and you talked about your failure. You know, you talked about how you totally failed in New York and he, he sort of couldn't believe it because he said, you know, people at St. Martin's, which is a very large, wealthy, successful church, they never talk about their failure, but he said it was so powerful because it allowed everyone in that room to tell the truth about their own lives and their own failure. And, and I was just sort of blown away. The fact that he remembers that, you know, four years ago. Mm. Um, and I did feel that a little bit. I felt like I came in with nothing to hide. You know, part of me wanted to be like, uh, it's sort of, oh, I've come from New York City, so glamorous, blah, blah, you know, planted a church. Like, I could have spun that a certain way, but I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to tell the truth, um, which honestly, I, I, I can't really do it. I, I'm not good at spinning things, so I didn't really have a choice, but, um, and it worked out great, you know, and people, people lapped it up because um, everyone's, everyone's blown it, you know, in their career and their family, with their kids and their marriage. Um, so you start talking about failure and uh, a lot of heads start nodding, you know? Do, do you think like temperamentally, like, are you still wired for startup stuff? Like, would you do it again? Would you plant another church? Oh God, I don't think so. I don't, I, I don't think so. It's so hard. It's so, I mean, anyone who success, could successfully plant a church, I just think it's the most amazing thing. It's so hard. 
and and I was, I'm still I'm still sort of sort of scared to death to be in charge. But then again, I, I sort of I feel like that's an appropriate response. You know, like I'm not the rector right now. Probably someday I'll be a rector again. Um, the idea of that scares me a little bit. Um, but I think that's appropriate. I think I probably was not quite as scared as I should have been planning a church. Um, I mean, I knew it could fail. I remember when I was going to plant, I said, you know, we're going back to New York to plant a church and maybe it'll be super successful and it'll be there 20 years and maybe it'll fail so that I'll be, I'll be okay with moving to Iowa, you know, but I just did, I I literally said that and, and uh, it just turned out Iowa was Houston, Texas, you know, sort of the, the place I never thought I would end up, which, you know, of course ended up being the perfect place, which we love and I hope to be for a while. Do you think that like the chat, like, so you're in a place right now that is probably St. Martin's is, is probably not super flexible, like any big institution, but it's also not fragile, right? Like you yeah. can't, you can't make change overnight, yeah. but you've got a foreseeable future. Absolutely. You know, and, and I feel like is, is the thing I, that's I challenging. Paycheck, I get a paycheck every two weeks without fail, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is a yeah. great thing. You, and you know, probably got like, you it. probably got like a, one of the, you know, uh, Keurig around like the coffee maker. Oh, and, you yeah. know, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like I have an assistant. You know, like I, I, I'm on a hall with six other priests. Like I've never, it's the first place I've ever worked, except for my first job in ministry um, at this Presbyterian church in California. It's the first time I've worked in ministry, uh, not by myself, you know, and not being in charge. And it's wonderful. I love it. You feel, you feel like the church plant thing that what's great about church plants is they're flexible, but with the flexibility comes fragility. Like that you can turn it on a dime. You can make a lot of quick changes, but also you could run out of money really quickly or, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, like, I always find that it's interesting the leadership give and take between flexibility and fragility. Yeah, what do I think about that? They are agile, but I, people change is difficult for people. You know, like so, like the type of people who plant churches probably really like newness and they like change. Like I like change, but for the people in your congregation, uh, what you perceive as sort of flex the ability to change and flexibility that can be really stressful. You know, I think it takes a certain kind of person to have a high tolerance for change because most people that show up to church, like they want, they want some, they want to know what they're, what to expect, you know? And I think that makes uh, church planning tough. I, I don't, I don't know what I think about church planning. It's crazy. I, I do think the money thing is a big thing. Um, I think if I was to give anyone counsel about planting a church, I would say, first of all, listen to the startup podcast from the beginning, because that there's a lot of helpful stuff in there. You know, the Gimlet Media startup podcast, which I wish I'd had when I planted a church. And then I would say, you know, find any way you can to make money not a factor, whether that means you have a job where you pay your own bills and you just show up on Sundays, or if it means that uh, you find some very wealthy benefactor who will just, you know, bank you, rule you for whatever reason. But as much as you can try to eliminate money as being a factor because it just creates so much stress. It's, it's, it's very hard to do ministry when you don't know if you're going to be able to pay your rent. It's very, very hard. Truer words, never spoken. Do you, do you think that the like a challenge for most mainline churches? I imagine this is true in the Episcopal Church, right? There's a lot of congregations that are small and they're more fragile than they think, but aren't very flexible. So they don't think they could go yeah. under, but realistically, That's right. That's they right. could. Yeah. They're almost as fragile as a church plant, but because of the institutional legacy, they don't see it. Yeah, yeah. Because right. I think that's the hardest ministry thing, like the turnaround of it's the, of the 150 person yes. church. That's pro- or the 30 person church, you know, or the, the 30. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the average. I think they said the average Sunday attendance of Episcopal churches in America right now is like 50 or 60. You know, that's the average. Um, and I think you're right. That may be the only thing that's harder than planting a church is kind of resurrecting a dying church. Um, yeah, and I, that's another job I would not want. Um, so, so it's very hard. So you're sticking at St. Martin's for a while. <laughs> I think so. It's pretty, I like gr- that. it's a pretty good place and we're doing good ministry and it's just a great team. You know, we've got a lot of, uh, mockingbirders on our staff and we're hoping to add more. Um, and it's just, dude, uh, if you could pay me, I'll come down there. If, if there's okay. a cure, you know, like I'll set a studio up, I'll do some fun ministry. I'll like hanging out. We, hey, you know, it, I'll set up let's, a, let's talk, a satellite you know? office, dude. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. You're speaking absolutely. my language. I got yeah. family in Houston. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and Houston's a pretty great city. I got to say it's not a, I mean, as, as everyone who moves here, from other places uh, say, you know, if you made your list of top 50 places you wanted to live, this probably would not be on it. But then you get here and you're like, this is actually a pretty great city. So um, it's a, it's a fun place to live. There's a lot going on. So if you were going to, you talked about how you would counsel people, like just beyond church planning in general, like people that are going into ministry, going into seminary and they actually, you know, they're the people, the the 5% that actually want to do 
<laughs> work in churches. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, what would you say to them like that you wish you had known now? Like what what, what advice would you give them going into their own theological formation? Oh, man. Well, the first thing is that generally speaking, when you come at a seminary, you usually think you know everything. You know, it's kind of like you're a teenager again. You know, and where you and they you say they say people people go to seminary to learn Hebrew and Greek and teach theology to other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you and you sort of you know you you've been basking in in all these theological paradigms, and you you've been thinking about ministry, and you've got the perfect plan and strategy, and 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 whatever it is. I mean, that even for me, you know, if I if I just preach the gospel, it'll work. You know, if I just communicate grace effectively enough, it will work. Um, and and that's just you know you got to stay humble. Man, ministry is is a crazy thing, and you just you need to be thankful and humble and um, quiet and uh, keep your anthropology low, <laughs> keep your expectations low. Don't expect that you're going to change anybody. Um, yeah, when encouragement comes your way, like just enjoy it, bask in it, you know. Um, and when you find a good situation, if you find it, if you're lucky enough to find a good situation, uh, don't, don't, you know, don't knock it because, uh, ministry is, is fun, but it's also, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's difficult. And, um, I don't know. And it's, it's inherently out of your control. You know, as Nick Lannon, uh, said once, I love this. He said, you know, ministry is, uh, waxing the surfboard and waiting for God to send waves. And I think that's exactly right. You know, you can wax that surfboard as much as you want, but until the waves come in, you know, aka the Holy Spirit, um, it, it just doesn't really matter. Like ministry really is about what God does and not about what you do, you know? RJ, thanks for talking with us. And I hope you'll come back on the show again. And I hope to meet you in person, maybe like in New York City, the 10th anniversary. Or yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. That's going to be great. I can't believe it's been, uh, it's been 10 years. It's been fun to watch it. Uh, it's been fun to watch it grow. Exciting. April, everybody. Everybody can join us. You, Indeed. our listeners, can be there too. Thanks, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Rick, welcome to the Mocking Cask. Good to be here, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. Now, full disclosure, you and I got to know each other because you called me, which was your first mistake, in <laughs> relationship to the work you do. You actually are part of you your firm your do you call it firm practice yes. what do you, you, okay uh, firm. either either practice uh, yeah it's called SEMA partners for churches correct and you are like a really high powered ecclesiastical slash religious headhunter right um i would use all those words except high powered okay i like but medium powered <laughs> yeah medium we we try our best so what sir in all seriousness i think that you know, churches, my sense is in our culture right now, people are, well, in fact, I just, on our podcast uh, a couple weeks ago, we went over some material from the Atlantic, that people are really still, the, the, so in lots of parts of the country, people are still spiritually curious, religiously interested, they have all kind of beliefs, many which would be identified as Christian, but people have a tough time with the church going to church, even people that I self-identify as Christian, many of them go to church less. So finding, you help match churches with leaders, that seems to me like a tough job in our particular cultural milieu. Is it? Yeah, I, uh, it's challenging. It's got its challenges. I think um, because a lot of our work, we would say the the work we're most often called into are sort of unique, um, challenging um, situations, complex, often complex. So um, I think that makes it uh, the work uh, more difficult, if you want to use that word. Um, so, you know, we're working a lot of times with more independent churches or churches that uh, maybe they've gone through a significant transition. Um, you know, maybe, maybe their geographic context has some uh, specificity or complexity to it. So that that's what really, you know, makes it more challenging. Um, you know, I, I don't know. And I think that's, you know, the, the world of church that you describe certainly is, um, part of the challenge too. Um, but you know, I think we, we would say we take each church individually. 
um, and and focus really hard to you know understand that particular um, congregation and and context and and then how do people find you? How do people like? How does somebody go like they're a vestry or they're an elder or search committee something? How do they get from hey? We're called to find, you know, the pastor. I heard, I once heard a pastor who uh, said he left his church this way. He he left a, a Presbyterian, a large Presbyterian church in York to go to a large one in Pittsburgh. And he got up to his congregation. And he said, "I have an announcement to make. I'm leaving you for a big brick woman in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, a big a big red brick woman in Pittsburgh. So when the pastor gets up and says, "I'm leaving you for a big red brick woman in Pittsburgh," how long generally before that announcement, the heartbreak? Or the harass, depending on the on, on the on the situation. Right, right, right. How right. long before y- you're kind of called into action? How do people find you? Why do people call on you? Because I think it's a pretty interesting, you know, kind of work you do. Yeah, honestly, most of the work that we get comes through word of mouth, through our relational network. Now, uh, let's say a pastor announces they're leaving and they form a search committee or in a Presbyterian church, a PNC or whatever it is. You know, those people might do some research and look, hey, we want to use a search firm. And so we're going to, you know, interview two, three, four people. Because there are, you know, we, we certainly have competitors, you know, in the marketplace, if you want to call it that, others who serve churches. So... It, that one of two ways people find us word of mouth, their network, um, or they're going to do the research and they're go online and, and they're going to find us. Honestly, um, the places where we get uh, hired or called into most come from that relational network. People who have used us and recommend us, people who know of us through some other realm, um, that's that's really how the bulk of our work comes to us. What is the most challenging thing about this kind of work? Um, I think there are two two challenges. One is when we work with a committee and um, helping them to really stay focused on what they've said they're looking for. I think as time goes on, it's it's really easy for people to get impatient or frustrated and then say, well, you know, uh, let's just kind of settle or whatever. So it's kind of keeping that focus. And, and honestly, you know, like I called you because somebody gave me your name. It's the, the people that we're looking for, the people that we connect with are not necessarily out there looking. And so the hardest piece is getting to those right people. We don't start with a database. It's not like we have a drawer full of, uh, um, you know, candidates who have come to us and said, Hey, help me find a job. There's no app like swipe, right, swipe, left, swipe, right. So narrow it down. You just, you do this the old fashioned way. Yeah, we do. We really do. It's the old fashioned way. It's making the calls, making the contacts, um, doing our research, using our relational network. And, and, you know, I mean, that's how I, you know, came to talk to you. Yeah. What, what for you is the most like rewarding thing? Like what keeps you in the game? When it when it when this thing is going on longer than you wanted, or when somebody is bringing metrics that they've learned from their accounting firm, and you're like, "Hey, this isn't exactly how you do this." Like, what keeps you in the game? Right. Um, two things keep me in the game. One, and and I don't, Scott, I don't want to over spiritualize this at all, but we really do. Okay, feel then like- let's let's under spiritualize it. Let, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we really do feel like we are part of the process of God bringing the right people to churches. So, so, you know, when it gets tough, when it seems to go on for a long time, it's like, okay, we're really partnering with God in this process. So, so that's the one thing that keeps it in there. I mean, it is a, it's a, it's a holy endeavor on, on many levels, as much as it, it can kind of look like or feel like a, a business. The other thing is, is to, to remember those times, and there are many of them, where at the end of the day, a church has called a pastor, and because of that call, because of the way God has worked, that that church is thriving because that person has come, and that person is really thriving as well. So, you know, I look at places that we've done, that I've done work, and, and I and I and I see those places where 
it's clear that God's hand was in that and that person has come and they're doing really well and the church is really moving, you know, in the mission that God has for them. And it's, it's all worth it. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a very rewarding experience. Rick, last question. Now it's, 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 we're coming up on Labor Day and this is the time when people, if they've been away from the church for a while, they've been busy or maybe they've had a rekindling of faith or maybe they were in a church that didn't work and they're thinking about trying to get back into a faith community. What advice from your end of the leadership kind of partnering and pairing end of church life would you have for people that are on the other end of the pew and are trying to discern uh, not like who the pastor is, but who their pastor and community should be. Like, do you, have you had any insights since you've been doing this kind of work? Yeah. I, um, you made a distinction there or you, you, you know, a person comes in and you said they're trying to decide, you know, who their person is and their community or the right pastor and the right community. Um, and this might be my own personal perspective. Okay. But I think um, the community the, the local gathering of God's people is is ultimately way more important than any singular pastor. Now, you know, in our world of sort of celebrity pastor or whatever, um, there's a lot of emphasis put on that one person, the person who gets up in the pulpit or in the front of the stage or whatever and gives a sermon. And they certainly have a lot. But I would say to somebody look for a community who is reflecting the values and belief systems and sense of mission that you're about more so than that one singular person. That's me. Okay. Rick, thanks a lot. And before you go, can you just tell our listeners how they would find you if they want to, if they want to use your services yep. to find who God's calling to their community? Yeah. Our work with churches is, is branded under uh, SEMA partners for churches and they can go to S P and the number four churches.com. Folks, if you're looking, you could do a lot worse. Trust me than calling Rick and getting he and his firm's expertise. He's a great guy. And I would wholeheartedly encourage you to Lean on him if you're in the search process. Thanks for joining us, Rick. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. Welcome back to another Mockingcast. I'm sitting here with Sarah Condon. Thank you. Hi. And David Zoll, the animating force <laughs> of this show. I didn't want to leave this that out. My name is Jeff Holskill. I'm sitting in for Scott Jones today. I'm kind of moving chairs from guest uh from the, the guest chair to the, the main host chair. It's kind of like moving from like the color commentary. If you guys are baseball fans, you know, you guys are like the co- color commentary, but then Scott's usually the play by play, you know, he kind of makes the whole thing <laughs> kind of work. So I'm taking that chair. Hopefully this will go. Okay. Hopefully it's going okay with Scott. You think Scott's doing okay? Uh, what do you think, Sarah? I mean, I've gotten a lot of emails. I feel like Scott's having a hard time letting go this week. So. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling Scott is very much present in spirit uh, with yes. us right now. <laughs> we may, we may, he may actually even call in, even though we don't have a way to do that. Yeah, yeah. he'll all of a sudden just kind of figured out a way to crash the recording and have, make right. this a call-in show. Well, Scott, we Scott all, some love, yeah. Yeah, we, all, we definitely love you. He'll be back in the driver's seat next week so and i'm sure scott's upset that he's not a part of this conversation but 50 years ago if you guys can believe a show came out which then became movies which then became other shows and other movies it's 50 years of star trek was anyone else raised with star trek because this is really important to me yeah i was raised with star trek we my parents really limited what we were allowed to watch on television so at night i could watch uh star trek or i could watch dragnet Oh, Dragnet. So, I forgot about Dragnet. I watched Dragnet. a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, Dragnet. Was it Star Trek yeah. on the reruns or was it the next generation or a combination of both? It was, it was a combination of both. Okay. Yeah, it was a combination of both. Yeah. That's yeah. like my whole childhood right there. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I wasn't raised with um, Star Trek almost at all. I, 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 rem- I think I do remember seeing The Wrath of Khan in theaters, one of the first movies I saw. Cause I rem- or actually, you know what? I think I saw The Search for Spock uh, when, I was, when I was really young. But I didn't... Um, for all of the sci-fi that I was exposed to, and it was a lot and a lot of sort of B horror movies type things, Star Trek really wasn't on the menu. And I, um, 
looking back, I can kind of see why, but I also feel like I missed out on a lot of amazing uh, references and lore. I mean, what was the what was the one episode, Sarah, that you said your dad? made you watch like every year at the same time or something? It was if we were sick, if we came home sick from school, we could either watch The Trouble with Tribbles or oh, Citizen classic. Kane. So we classic. always watch The Trouble with Tribbles. Oh, exactly. That's like <laughs> the best one from the original series. I will tell you guys though, it really holds up because it's it's so funny to be talking about this this Sunday afternoon. My husband, who's exhausted on Sunday because he pastors a church, um, wanted to hang out with our son but didn't really have him to do anything super active. And so they sat and watched watched i guess it was the first star trek movie together and he, it was great like they wow. loved it the yeah. original motion picture from yeah. 1979 yes wow yes. i've always heard that's that's the really tedious one so it is that, they loved it must have been that's kind of perfect for a sunday afternoon though i guess because any of the others might might get you too worked up and you've already spent all your emotional energies already out the door yeah yeah well, I grew up uh, watching, I think, The Voyage Home, which is the time-traveling one where they go to San Francisco, and I grew up in the Bay Area, so that was like... I saw that yeah, in the yeah. drive, drive-in theater in California, so I loved all those. Those are classics. So two uh, quick tidbits for everyone listening. Star Trek has promoted the greatest split infinitive of all of the English language, to boldly go where no man has go. To boldly uh. go where no man... This is, this is for all of you... Uh, grammarians out there that's a split infinitive we've been brainwashing our children ever since and it was the first i don't know if any of you knew this first interracial kiss on television was between mm. kirk and ohura mm-hmm. uh back in like the night late 1960s although i think they were under some sort of alien control so it wasn't their fault <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I, I heard the ones that um uh in like i don't know how how this polling is done but they said that the trekkie or trekker uh population is the least racist population uh on the planet because they really? think they think not in terms of races but in terms of species <laughs> like literally oh, good for them that they're 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 maybe maybe uh humanistic in in that in the like they're truly you know humans first kind of way but they're uh they they're not separating between black white and you know asian they're much more focused on klingon and romulan versus uh human well, I think when you spend that much time learning Klingon, it'll it'll do that to you. Mm. Did anybody <laughs> yeah. did anybody watch uh, Galaxy Quest? We don't have to go there, but that I, Galaxy Quest is the m- most amazing spoof on Star Trek ever. No, so you have that. to go check that out for the next okay. Sunday afternoon uh, All right. activity. So speak- I hadn't. I had, well, by the way, wait, J- Jeff, just uh, real quick. I hadn't. I'd never seen the bread and circuses um, episode, and, and sort of in researching this little segment today, I watched it. That that episode where they I guess they travel to a planet that's just like Earth, but is still occupied by the Romans, and they they have to fight as gladiators, Spark, Kirk and Scott and Spock, and uh, all the other gladiators are people who who uh, worship the sun. And this sort of religion of universal peace and brotherhood. Ooh. And it turns out they're sort of confused by it. And Spock at the end is like, you know, for such an advanced society, why are they worshiping the sun? That is such a, you know, primitive belief. And then O'Hara chimes in and says, actually, I've decoded their messages. They're, they worship the son of God. Oh. And it turns out like they were, they were, Jesus had just been there. And, 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 uh, Kirk and Shatner finishes it by saying, they have both, you know, Christ. And Caesar, I wish we could be there to see where it all goes, or something like that. And what a glorious, uh, you know, adventure they're on. It was for such a staunchly, or like the show that's become such a poster boy for secularism. It's a, I had no idea that episode existed. So it just goes to show you how. Uh, oh, how, I'm gonna have to go find that and dig that. Yeah, up again. for sure. Interesting. I put the I put the main clip of it on Mockingbird yesterday afternoon that, where they talk about the brother universal uh, brotherhood and peace and the son of God. It was really really chronic touching. Nice. Well, for all of you Trekkies out there who are offended because David called you Trekkers, let let him redeem himself by going to Embird uh, and uh, checking out that clip there. You know. Get it right, Zal. Yeah. So speaking of other very ancient things, uh, 50 years moving on to many hundreds are moving back. The Olympics are over. The Olympics have come and gone. Did you guys follow the Olympics much? Was it? I, I follow the swimming like religiously. Okay. What about what about you, Sarah? We watch everything. 
We watched yeah. all of it. Yeah. Every night we would watch it. Even in the afternoon, I would watch it. Yeah. We, I didn't really like watching sports. I didn't grow up. Uh, shockingly, someone who watched Dragnet on television didn't grow up watching a lot of sports either. Um, but I married somebody who loves sports and uh, loves the Olympics, which has been such a gift. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we watch a ton of it. It's super fun. I, I don't know what happened this year. I har- hardly watched any of it. So I it's terrible. So, But now that the <laughs> Olympics are over, the athletes, there's a lot of reports about athletes kind of like having this... Uh, post Olympic Olympics letdown. So yeah, the NPR did a wrote an article about the um, sort of the blues that people get post uh, Olympics. And this is kind of well documented at this point. You, you know, from people like Mark Spitz uh, and uh, uh, you know, Michael Phelps fit more kind of famously recently, but they, they kind of go through, it's this, uh, this article that is kind of one sermon illustration after another about, you know, you getting your heart's desire um, and um, it not being enough or what do you do next? Um, but it, it really, what it really does is it, it talks about all the people that come in, um, you know, second or third or fourth or 37th, uh, and, and the addiction that you, um, you get so inured or so, um, um, uh, driven by this feeling, this intensity and the kind of idea that you are becoming the best version of yourself that exists. That's how one of the competitors says it. There's nothing that grips your imagination like qualifying for an Olympic team. So that's what makes it hard to replace. This is what Dan Billington, who's a triathlon in Rio, who finished 37th. Um, and he says, he's, he goes on to say, currently nothing fills that void. It's just a little empty part. And that's okay for a little while as long as it gets filled uh, before it starts to fester. And then they talk about, they talk to some psychologists. Uh, this guy uh, says, talks about the stuff that we all know that your identity is so wrapped up in being an athlete. And all of a sudden you don't have that. And who am I? And there's, a, there's kind of some opportunity here. I mean, it, it, it wouldn't it be, uh, I, w- I was, I was thinking like it might be kind of nice to have your slate wiped completely clean at the app, you know, and be like, okay, well I can be someone else now. Um, but it's also quite, you know, uh, crushing the, the, you know, this is a not very a subtle, um, illustration of what, of how the law works on people. I mean, you spend your entire, uh, life, you, you're everything uh, is geared towards this one achievement, and um, if you don't get it, or even if you do get it, it's still um, it cannot deliver what it promises. Uh, this is uh, this. They, they interview a uh, a pentathlon athlete, Margot Isaacson, who said that at the London Olympics in 2012 she finished fourth. She says, "I just remember thinking, wow, if I'd run a second faster, if I got one extra fencing touch, then I would have a medal." I just come home and felt so defeated and sad. And that's, uh, you know, your whole life, you kind of live a haunted life almost mm-hmm. where nothing will live up to that um, or you're kind of labeled in a way that is um, uncomfortable. So the cost of this momentary glory is can, looks like it's quite um, enormous and, and these people certainly warrant our compassion but also uh, uh, our, our caution. I I kept thinking of this pastor that I met recently um, who uh, came into a church that was doing fine. And because he's an incredible preacher, an incredible teacher, um, just the church is huge now. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of people. And, but the guy's in his seventies and he just, he retired probably three years ago. And he said to me, I just don't know what to do with the mantle that was placed on me now. Mm. And like there, there's a lot of loneliness. It seems like he's grappling with. And um, yeah, it, it is an interesting question when we have that singular drive in our life for something. What does that translate into when that's taken away? What, what are we missing out on? I mean, I keep thinking of like Simone Biles, who was incredible. But every time I looked at her and the commentators would say this stuff over and over again, I think, you know, she was homeschooled. Like she didn't go to prom. Like, you know, I mean, all those things that they give up along the way. And I, I don't know if you can say it was worth it. And I don't know if you can say that it, it isn't. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, you know, it's, it's all it's very complicated when our identity is bound up in this one thing. Yeah, it- I, I was kind of thinking as I was reading that and just thinking, you know, over this uh, phenomena with the Olympic athletes is we put them on a pe- just even qualify just being in the Olympics. We all view it as like, oh, I could never do that like that. They're like superhumans. And then you hear this and you're like, wait, they're just 
this is just the human condition. This is, you know, we strive after things, but the object of our desires hardly satisfy us. And then, you know, the pinnacle achievement just becomes this, you know, despair. I was like, wait, that's all of us. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. in one sense, the Olympics are like the, these people that are so different than us. And then in another sense, it's like they just show like exactly how we all are. Like we're all just yeah. trying to like find our meaning and our identity, probably in the wrong place. We don't know how to like move past the things that let us down and we're stuck in the past. Like I was, it's like, this is, yeah, this is all of us. I mean, if anything, we hedge our bets. Like, we, we, I got my identity invested in like five or six different places. Sure, sure. <laughs> so you got it. one. That's true. Yeah, and it's and it's it, and that's why it's always really refreshing when you hear these athletes talk about their relationship with God after they've won. Um, not because you're sort of like excited that you know the glory uh, goes to or that Jesus gets the credit or something like that and the cosmic scoreboard, we rack up another point or something like that. But because for that person, you know that at least with their lips, they are, uh, there's, there's another aspect to their identity that maybe goes beyond, um, we, we highlighted something about one of the, the diving teams. And mm-hmm. I remember watching the, 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 the women who won the hurdles. It was these three black ladies who were just incredible. And they, they won. And, you know, those, the, we crave one of the reasons we love watching sports is because of the spontaneity, the authenticity, the, the sort of uncontrived reality that you actually get. And they, when they, when they talk to the, um, commentator they basically just said they just talked about how they'd had a prayer meeting that morning how jesus had been with them the whole time and that um that you know they they just knew that even if it hadn't worked out you know god was with them and 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 uh it was so overtly and uncomfortably religious uh, statement uh, <laughs> that the guy just had no he had he didn't have any foothold to grab in terms of like a non-religious statement that they'd made it turns out that, that the entire team had been having a huge prayer meeting the morning of the <laughs> And it was, it was it was beautiful because these they, they had something else and they had something real but they had they had something that was rooted in grace not in competition and I I was happy for for them um, when you don't get to see that as much for some of the other athletes mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. I remember. I just want to know what he what did he ask him? Was he's like was he like so they go on and on about the prayer breakfast or prayer meeting and then he's like so did you ladies carb up like what do you know what I mean yeah. You're like what yeah. do you say so is it As fruit or noodles or, for breakfast? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he tried to draw out their clearly their friendship, but okay. it was their friendship had been couched entirely in terms of their faith and. um you know, honestly, black athletes can get away with it in a way that white athletes can't, as we all know. But it's um, it was it was so non uh, fake, non phony. It was just completely uh, who they were, and um, in that moment, they had something more than just. Uh, and I don't want to get into a superiority thing. I just think that it was what was touching about it was that uh, that they were going to go home and um, they were not alone. Mm-hmm with their medals. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Well, speaking of the search for meaning or giving reasons for our lives, uh, Robert Burton in the New York times is kind of suggesting that that's, uh, not just a difficult task, but a, a ridiculously pointless one that our moral judgments and our free will or any kind of reason is just superfluous. Mm-hmm. So what should we do with that? Well, it's uh, a drum we've been beating for a long time with Mockingbird, but also just as Christians, but that uh, reason alone does very little for people. You know, you can't, um, I think they talk about, uh, you can't really educate people into um, happiness. they're, they, they quote a lot, bunch of Jonathan Haidt. They said that there's a difference between people who are sort of thrive on reason and rationality and those who have purpose. And then, in fact, we are decision-making creatures rather than rational creatures. And this is something that we we know to be true. That we are, you know, Jeff, you're a Augustine scholar. I think you could yes. talk to us about the affections till the cows come home. But the the um, the they they quote Jonathan Haidt um, and they say that in, instead of sort of we're not beings weighing sort of pluses and minuses in, in our in our interactions with people we we actually have a of a, of a um an emotional response to something and then um we act on it and uh, we sort of justify it and it's it's a it's a it's just a reformulation of the cranmarian uh slogan that what the uh heart desires the will chooses and the mind justifies i couldn't help but think about this in terms of uh you know scott's um 
conversation with uh, Bart Campolo a few weeks ago and the sort of bald-faced uh, worship of reason when uh, reason has um, even been shown by scientists to be so um, inst- uh you know, uh, the way that people actually work and the way they do find meaning. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, the, and the, and the Robert Burton, I think, comes to the closing. He's like, I don't want to, don't want we don't want to throw reason out. You know, the unexamined life, um, may still not be worth living. And, uh, we do think about things and it's, it's great. But in terms of where people actually live, it rarely has to do with rational, cold, um, sort of, uh, pluses and minuses. I, I, I found it to be, a, people get very scared because of what it says about free will. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a difference between being a robot and, and having your will constrained, which is uh, what I would say is a more Christian view. Um, but anyway, remarkable to see, and especially on the heels of a, uh, of a, of a, of a conversation about this very topic. Yeah, I am. Um... I just think over and over again, we keep trying to claim that we have some control over our brains and we don't. And we're seeing that again and again in these studies that we have, we have so little control over our brains and, and the thoughts that we have and, and even how we act on them. Um, and I, I could think of this, this line popped into my head as soon as I was reading it. And I was like, where is that from? I've read that recently. And I realized I had been looking at my notes from the New York conference in the spring. And I was, um, I took so many notes when Jacob Smith and, um, Sasha Hines did the talk together, the good enough where positive psychology and the gospel meet. And Sasha Hines said, and it's a thing we know, but we need to be reminded over and over again that human beings are the only creatures that will that will self-sabotage mm-hmm. um and you know it just speaks to that we think we have control we think we're making these really rational decisions over and over again in our lives but really it is the bound will that makes these decisions um yeah and if you think about people as these people if you just have access to the right information you're going to make good decisions you're going to start to hate them I mean, if, right. if that's if if you're a pastor or yes. if you're just in relationships, period, and you think uh, people are free agents making good decisions, you know, you're going to when they when they don't do it, you're going to think what's wrong with them? They must be idiots, and they wish they were more like me. Um, even though you're not in control of yourself making that very moral judgment against them, but it's uh, I always find you know my father writes in Grace and Practice about when we talk about the unfree will, uh, you have to phrase it for the, in in terms of love. You can love another person if you realize that they are just as bound by their psychogenetic makeup as you are and just as prone to make a self-sabotage, um, then you, then you can actually, you're not, you're not constantly expecting them to be something that they're not capable of being. And, you know, we may know this in our heads. It, it, it's a hard time translating to our heart, but, uh, that's what, um, is, is what's at stake. It's not some sort of winning again, not winning an argument, winning a sort of a rational argument about rationality. It's not that it's how do you, can you love another person? Or do you, are you going to hate them because you need them to be something that they're not capable of being? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, things like like uh, these studies and others, they really help me uh, have compassion for people, both like in parenting or pastoring, and have just remembering that most people have an emotion and then they're looking for a reason. Mm. Uh, and when we approach people as having reasons... Uh, and then kind of emotions afterwards, I think we respond to people totally differently. But I, like I've seen this all the time, pastoring and, and in other situations where you hear people talking and you just know they're talking themselves into a, a position that they've already felt to be true in some other way. And they're just looking for reasons and arguments to justify it. And, w- and once you see that, then I think there's more opportunity to, to ask the deeper questions of our desires and our hopes and our fears rather than just being on the surface level of well is this a good or a bad reason or something like that because then you you know we could waste so much time relationally uh living on that level of knowledge rather than the kind of the affections as as you were saying so yeah we're we're feeling beings (laughs) for some reason well speaking of kind of our emotions preceding our reasons there's no other topic that creates more emotion and less reason than being judgmental about other people's parenting. Oh my goodness. This, is that uh, not true? 
<laughs> I mean, I say that as someone who just had a, uh, we just had our third child. And um, I, I was talking to, I was talking to uh, a friend who disclosed that another friend of theirs and a friend, you know, their cousin's uncle said that they, do, they stopped supporting people in ministry who have more than two children. <laughs> Because they think it's irresponsible. Oh my goodness! <laughs> because they themselves feel like they can't afford a third child, and so um, you know they're all wrapped up in that game. But they uh, <laughs> talk about uh, you know lending a moral judgment to uh, you know anyway. And you oh. see that I remember uh, being in Whole Foods, and this is the sort of opposite end of the ideological spectrum. Or talking to a friend who was in Whole Foods, and she, she was, I think, eight months pregnant with their third baby, and someone came up. To her and said, "You know, we're just supposed to replace ourselves." <gasps> and she thought to myself, "What? Where am I? You know, is this? What, should I wear a scarlet letter?" But uh, you, you know, what? What do you? I, I've got an eight month. I'm eight months pregnant. You know, there's <laughs> this baby's coming. You want right. to say, oh, oh, I forgot about that. Thanks for telling me. Um, it's all just a whole shaming uh, thing. But th- what we're talking about here um, in relation to the uh, emotion and reason is this incredible uh, article that came out on NPR and has been in uh, uh, courts. And Adam Morton wrote a really incredible post. If people haven't read oh, that, yeah, it's if great. you're a parent, if, you're, if you know some parents, um, if you're a Christian, if you uh, uh, know some Christians, <laughs> read the post. It's really <laughs> kind of brilliant. It's one of my favorite things we've done, although I like everything we do. Um, but it talks about uh, how basically the, the culture of over-vigilance that we're dealing with in our country right now, which is really hyper-pronounced or hyper-vigilant, but it's also you know exponentially more pronounced than in almost every other country in the world, where you know p- parents can be arrested for letting their kids walk to school alone and things like that. And uh, they said that it may not just have to do with litigiousness or um, you know other cultural values. It might ultimately be that we enjoy joy judging other people's parenting that um, we connote increased risk uh, with uh, with with morality that's a little bit complicated to to say but it's it's not that risks to children have increased uh, provoking an increase in moral outrage when children are left unattended instead it could be that moral attitudes towards parenting have changed such that leaving children unsupervised is now judged to be morally wrong and because it's judged to be morally wrong people overestimate the risk mm-hmm. that's a slightly circuitous way of saying that um, if a child is left at home. This is the experiment. If a child is left at home for 10 minutes, um, people will say that it's more risky if the parent has um, left for a reason that is kind of doesn't jive with what they think it should be. The, the facts of the matter is that ch- all these children have been left alone for five minutes. So th- theoretically, the risk is the same to all of them. But if the parents left them there to go meet their lover or the parents left them there to go to work, or the parents got caught in a car accident and have been, you know, uh, it completely changes how risky a person sees it, not the right or wrong. So we equate risk with morality. It's a very interesting uh, thing. So people don't only think that leaving children alone is dangerous and therefore immoral. People think it is immoral and therefore dangerous. So if you can wrap your head around that, it's... um, it's uh, it helps explain actually a lot of why if we think that we're um, creatures who breathe live and breathe the law and judgment and that's how what we know uh, then um, we're going to um, only it's only going to tighten especially around the area of, of parenting and although every parent I know says that we're judged like crazy. Um, if all from everyone, and the, the mother is blamed for basically everything for, be, for being overprotective or for being unprotective. Like there's no doing it right, um, but that it could be that we also enjoy it so much. We enjoy judging other people that we're not willing to sort of let go of that. But um, what do you guys think, um, Jeff? Jeff, you're a parent, right? I am. I, a parent I, of two I see boys. lots of little, little, little 
children uh, uh, drawings behind you. Or, Sarah, uh, you've... Uh, I have a Bonnery poster behind me, so that's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, if I know you at all, I know you've got some things to say about this. Uh, yeah, so this hit is so funny. You know, we, we read these things and I should probably be saying something else, but, um, but what stayed with me uh, profoundly was actually the statistic about... Um, the risk of a child being abducted by a stranger and killed or not coming home is about 0.00007 or one in 1.4 million annually. Um, As opposed to, you know, letting them ride in a car with you, which is ultimately much, much, much more dangerous. The reason it stayed with me is because somebody tried to abduct me when I was in third grade (laughs) Um, because my parents... I know my parents had let me walk um, and I grew up in a neighborhood where we always walked to each other's house and um, they let me walk to my best friend's house, Emily's house, which was five houses down from their house. And yeah, and a guy pulled over in the car and he tried to get me in the car with him. And um, again, another dragnet reference, but um, (laughs) I went, I went into the house. I actually, you know, got away from him and went back to my parents' house and, uh, my dad put me in the car with my mom. They covered me with a blanket and the floorboard and, and followed this guy, Wow! which is nuts, what? right? Yeah. Followed this guy. And, Ladies um, and gentlemen, so, we're hearing this for the first time. Yeah. This is breaking <laughs> so they, news. So they follow him. Wow. So, um, they follow him all the way to this, uh, parking lot and, um, and he gets out and uh, he walks over. The guy walks over to my dad and my dad's like, Hey, can I help you? Know, can I help you? Do-? And the guy's like, well, I'm trying to get to the, you know, this job interview. And my dad's like, Oh, I know where that is. And um, you should watch Dragnet. It will save your life. And um, so my parents had a cell phone before anybody else had a cell phone. So mm-hmm. my dad calls the police and says, there's this guy and he's trying to pick up kids in the neighborhood and he's going to be in this parking lot. So he drives this up and the police show up and the guy gets arrested and he's done this before and he was drunk and it was this whole thing. So I'm a parent now (laughs) (laughs) with the neighborhood where kids walk around and, um, it's, it, it's, it's, I can't ever escape that. Right. Like as a parent, I can't ever escape that. And so, I loved this article. A ton of pe- people posted it. I loved what Adam had to say about it, but it does hit this very personal thing in me where it's like, yes, but it can happen. You know what I mean? And, and, and so when I see kids out in the neighborhood, there is an, there's an intrinsic part of me that judges their parent and I can't escape it. You know, I'm like, aren't they worried? Couldn't something happen? Have they thought, you know? Yeah. But the other thing that I, that I try to think about in those moments of just sheer, like, you know, reptilian brain panic for me is that, um, uh, Margaret Dietschy, who is the wonderful, wonderful wife of Andy Dietschy, the Bishop of New York, once said to me, she was telling me this story about when they were in seminary. And if you've been to seminary, uh, depending on where you go, there's a lot of children because everyone's like in their 20s and everyone's having right. kids and there's always kids running around. And she said there were these two kids that just were all their parents, <laughs> their parents weren't around a lot and they were always really like not well behaved. And, you know, we always were like, oh, what, what's going to happen to these kids? Like this can't turn out well. And she said, they're lovely now. I know them and they're adults and they turned out great. And so I cling to that in those moments that I look at other kids or even when I look at my own and, and I'm judgmental, I'm like, you know what? They're going to be adults. It'll be, you know, it'll be fine. But wow, that, Sarah. That, yeah. Job. Wow. That's an amazing story uh, well, on all fronts. Thanks for sharing it. Sure. Um, Heavy. <laughs> yeah. Goodness gracious. I think, Heavy. uh, I mean, I mean once, but, when something like that happens to you, I don't know how you can ever uh, have children. <laughs> I don't, well, but, I mean, but thank the, God it didn't happen now because I read this and I think, what if my parents had called the police and they would have said, well, why was your daughter out in the middle of street bars? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, right, yeah. thank God yeah, that happened, true. you know, 25 years ago. So, yeah. And you also think about the difference between the abduction thing that the difference in percentage of how often it could happen to the abduction versus the car accident. And you think that's also seems to correlate with it to the, to the difference in how more horrific one of them is. I right. mean, I, I, I can't imagine when you're, when you read about Elizabeth smart or you read about, oh. um, you know, one of these Jean Benet or some, something like that. You just think to yourself, um, 
you know, that's the only thing that I think that could drive me to actually like physically murder another person. Mm. So, yeah. you know, is it, I, yeah. when you watch these movies and, and I know that we're pumped full of these stories mm-hmm. because they do as parents, they, they, they hit this reptilian part of you that is, uh, I mean, you've never felt so strong about anything in your life until you've put yourself in that position. Uh, you'd yeah. much rather something happen to you. And it's, um, it's, it, it actually, you know, I, 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 this isn't, I'm not reaching here. This is always when I think about um, the gospel and I think about Jesus and, and people always talk about, you know, when you hear the sort of uh, with the cliche these days about cosmic child abuse or something like that, God allowing his son to, and I think, you know, any parent knows that it is much more costly for something to happen to your parent to, to your child than to you. And some aspect of the violence, love, self, it's more than self-sacrifice. Um, it's, it's more than self-sacrifice to, um, allow your something to your child out of love. And, you know, we, we talk about Jesus having agency in this as well. And it's not some sort of, uh, you know, awful, um, you know, forced thing. Uh, it's a surrender, but I, I always think about that now as a parent, and I know it it, it maybe alienates non-parents out there, but y- you know that that kind of love is incomprehensible. It it must be divine if it's if it goes that far, because I I could imagine sacrificing my myself, in fact, for any number of things, but I could never imagine that, never, like in a million years. Mm. So, yeah. Well, I think we should probably leave it with that thought, uh, the divine parenthood of God. Thank you, David and Sarah, for being on again, and uh, we will join you all next week. For everyone listening, thanks for being a part of the Mockingcast on Mockingbird Ministries. If you liked what you heard, please share it or write a review, and you can find all the contents that we were referring to on mbird. Com. Is that right? Did I get all that right, David and Sarah? You did. Yeah. And, right. and you are you are an angel, Jeff, for yes, filling Jeff. in for the animating uh, spirit of the Maki. <laughs> I'm not say, filling in. You're that. I don't know what Scott is. I'm, I'm, a, I'm of the ministry, perhaps. Oh, okay. uh, cast itself, there is one uh, spirit. There is one baptism. There is one God. <laughs> and his name is Scott Jones, and we miss him. We miss you. Uh, Well, thank you, everyone, for your support and generosity, and we will see you next week.